Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Black Pew Bible under your, the chair in front of you. You could go to page 856 here in the Pew Bible, page 856. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you're new to the Bible, when I say chapter 3, that's the big number. And the verse numbers are the small numbers there in the book of Matthew. All right? So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear then the word of the living God. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins." When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. Father, we praise you for speaking to us here in your word. We thank you that you're not a God who is silent, but as the kingdom has come, you have declared it to be. Father, your words to us is the most precious gift in this world. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, to be contrite and broken in spirit, and to tremble at your word. Give us a hunger for you, a hunger for your words, a hunger for your son, a hunger for your glory, a sensitivity and a submission to your Holy Spirit, that we might see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Father, this is impossible in reading and preaching your word on our own strength. So we're asking you to come now and help us for the glory of your name, the good of our neighbors, and the spread of the gospel to all nations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Chris Maragos, I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name right, Chris Maragos, he was a player for the Seattle Seahawks, a safety. When when their team was dominating the whole NFL a few years back and they made it to the Super Bowl, he said this, He said, um, to reach where we've reached, talking about his team, to reach where we've reached, the pinnacle, the pinnacle, which is the, the, you know, the top of their profession, you see, you really see how empty it is. You really see how empty it is. You dream about this your whole life, 
to be a football player if that was your dream like his dream, and then you get there and you get to the Super Bowl and you're dominating the league. And he says, when you get there at the top and you look up from the top, you climb the mountain, you get to the mountain peak and you look over and you say, is this it? This is what I was working my whole life for? Is this what it was all about? He's not the only one who's reached a lifelong goal to, only, to be sadly disappointed when he got to the mountaintop. You can hear this amongst not only successful athletes, but also among businessmen, scholars, artists, or even romantics. We taste something good. We aim for the fullness of it as the key to our life. Some of us actually get there with this lifelong ambition, and then we think, wow, I thought it was going to be different than what it actually is. Matthew here in Matthew chapter 3, he wants to prepare us for the king and his kingdom. Because we were actually made for a person and a place. We were made for Jesus the king, and we were made for heaven or the new earth, the place, the realm of his kingdom. We were made for the king and his kingdom. And until we enjoy him for who he is and what he gives and what he does, we will forever be spinning our wheels in the mud, trying to find peace and joy and happiness only to be disappointed again and again and again. So here, um, in verse 2, John talks about the kingdom of heaven that has come near. So we need to to define it first. What is the kingdom of heaven? In Mark, it's called the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? There are a lot of definitions, and it's highly debated. Let me give you a short paraphrase of my definition and then a, a little bit longer one. But here's a short definition, a simple one. The kingdom of God is the sinner saving cursed reversing rule of God, reign of God, kingship of God, okay? It's the sinner saving, curse reversing reign of God. That's what the kingdom of God is. Now, if I could expand it a little bit, it's God's sinner saving, curse reversing rule that aims at individuals to save them and join them into the community of the saved, the, commun- the new community of God's people who live under God's rule happily toward the eventual redemption of all creation, where, this, where heaven and earth become one. Literally, the new Jerusalem comes down, it says in Revelation 22, and we have heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth for all eternity. So that is the kingdom of God, his sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule. Now, for us, we like this football player, Chris Maragos, feel something is missing, that there has to be more to life, but we don't often realize that it's a thirst for the king and his kingdom. Even as Christians, you don't, have to be a, you don't only have to be a non-Christian to feel empty, even Christians feel empty from time to time. Christians feel like something's missing in their life. We know we're told, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. And yet we find out for most of our lives, most of the week from Monday to Saturday or even Sunday afternoon, For those who don't come to evening service, we might even just be seeking our own agenda the rest of the week, right? We get a little time out for the morning, Sunday morning from 9 a.m. if you go to Sunday school, and you were probably done around 12, and then there's your time to seek first the kingdom of God, and then the rest of the week, we often find ourselves seeking our own agenda, our own ambitions, rather than seeking God's, God's king and God's kingdom as our agenda through the responsibilities he gives us day to day and week to week. So our Christian lives are hollowed out and our enjoyment of God rarely rises above a five on a scale of one to 10. How can we, how can I, how can you 
be consistently joyful in God, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of the daily grind and the trials and the pains of life. Well, Matthew gives us this story, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. So let me summarize the story here. Let me retell the story for you, and then we'll, 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 we'll dive into it, okay? So the story here is, uh, remember in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph decides he's going to marry Mary, right? In chapter 2, um, Joseph, Joseph um, is with Mary, and they're in Bethlehem, and wise men from the east come eventually through Jerusalem to Bethlehem. They worship Jesus. They give money and gifts, basically three gifts to Jesus, which funds their trip to Egypt, Right? Then they have, then, um, in a dream, Joseph is told to go to Egypt because Herod is going to kill the babies. We talked about this last week in the fulfillment of prophecy. Herod comes and kills all the babies except for Jesus. He escapes. And then Jesus comes back from Egypt to the south of Judea and then eventually to Nazareth to be called a Nazarene. And now Jesus, so that's in Jesus' childhood. Now Jesus is an adult. But before we get to Jesus, which we'll talk about next week, here, we have someone who's preparing the way for Jesus. His name is John. There's this man named John the Baptist, and that's not like his denomination. You know, he wasn't like, oh, see, Baptists are biblical, not Presbyterians. Or That's not what it means by Baptist here. It's John the Baptizer. John, the one who is baptizing and immersing. That doesn't mean I don't think Baptists have it right. I do. But the point here is you can't use this text for that, okay? So John the Baptizer comes, and he's preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, the wilderness is just think of all hard rock with a little thin layer of dust and lots of big rocks for miles and miles and miles. That's the wilderness of Judea, okay? So he's out there in the middle of nowhere preaching, and um, he's telling people, repent because the kingdom of God has come near. And so John, he's a funny looking guy. He's dressed with camel hair, it says in verse four, a camel garment, camel hair garment, a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Not the most, he wasn't a normal looking person by any stretch in that time. People from all Jerusalem, Judea would travel out to the wilderness into the middle of nowhere just to listen to this guy preach. So they'd come all around, they would confess their sins, they would get baptized or immersed in the water in the Jordan where John was near the wilderness. And then Pharisees and Sadducees would come out, even the Jewish leaders, you know, the religious leaders. They got to find out what their people are doing. So they go out there and when John sees them, he doesn't welcome them with a warm hug. He says, you snakes, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? You need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't be so cocky that just because you're descended from Abraham, that, that you're a son of Abraham. God can make these stones sons of Abraham if you wanted to. You need to repent because judgment is coming and the ax is at the root of the tree and he will chop you off if you do not bear fruit. And then he says to the whole crowd, I baptize you all, I immerse you all with water for repentance, but there's one coming after me. I don't know who he is, I don't know where he is yet at this point, but there's someone coming after me whose sandal I'm not even worthy to untie. And he will come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He'll get on the threshing floor. He'll throw the wheat up into the air. The wind will blow. And the chaff and the wheat mixed together are tossed up into the air. The wind blows the chaff. And the wheat is gathered into the barn. But the chaff is gathered up to be burned. And that's John's message. That's that's the story of this passage. 
the thrust of this passage for Matthew's readers and for us today is you, you need to be prepared by repenting for the coming of the high and exalted one that everyone's anticipating. So even as you're reading the book of Matthew, so if you're reading through this book and you're in Matthew for the first time, so just think with fresh eyes, you've never read the book before, you're in Matthew 1, you hear this thing about this, name, this guy named Jesus, he's supposed to be this king that was prophesied to come, you read about his, his birth, his childhood, his escape, his return, and you're like, okay, so, so go, get on with the story, who is this guy? And Matthew would say, hey, before you read on and find out who this guy is, we need to take a time out, you need to get ready for what you're about to read in the rest of this book. You need to prepare your heart for what you're going to read in the rest of this book. I'm going to prepare the way, not only in the wilderness, in the story. Matthew's using John to prepare the reader's heart for what he's going to read in the rest of the story. Namely, you need to repent because when you read these pages, the kingdom of God is going to be coming at you. And if you are not repentant, you will not be able to receive the king or his kingdom. Okay, so that's the thrust, really, of this passage. We could just close in prayer right now and that would be you know, a fair summary of what's going on. But we want to expand on this and meditate on it for an extended amount of time. So here's the main goal for this sermon. The main goal is this. Listen, listen to the kingdom call through John. Listen to the kingdom call and respond with your soul, your life, your all. That's a quote from When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross, the last verse. But listen to the kingdom call and respond with your soul, your life, your all. Now, the kingdom of God here is going to call you to four things, to turn, to publicize, to live, and to look, okay? I want you to listen to the kingdom call, the call to turn, to publicize, to live, and to look. Listen to the kingdom call and respond with your soul, your life, and your all. So the first one, first point here, turn from your kingdom rebellion. God rules, he's the king. And he reigns and he has decrees and rules and laws and we have rebelled against him. So we need to turn from our kingdom rebellion. We need to repent. Look at verse one. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent. Okay, so here we are. John comes and what is he doing? What is he doing in verse one? I hear some of you saying it. What is he doing? He's preaching. John is preaching, he's proclaiming, he's declaring the word of God. So what do we need to do? If someone is preaching, if God's messenger is preaching, we should be listening, hearing, paying attention and heeding and thinking about what we're hearing. So John was preaching, proclaiming, heralding heralding the message of, of the kingdom, and we need to be listening. We must hear God's word preached and gospelized amongst us. Now, we believe in expository preaching in this church. We spend an hour every week here thinking behind this pulpit. Well, I'm behind this pulpit, you're here, and we are thinking about the word. We believe in the preaching of God's word. But in the Bible, preaching is not only or primarily this. This is one important strategic way of preaching in the life of a church that's set up, but preaching is any time we proclaim the word of Christ to others. It's gospelizing. I'm gospelizing here behind this bench or this sacred study desk with the word. But when you talk about God's word in your home, with your neighbors, in school, and you gospelize them, you declare the word of the Lord to them, you are preaching to them. That's the way the Bible uses the word preaching. It's not a 45 to one hour monologue. And some of you wish it would be 45. Maybe I do too. All right. So hear the word gospelized amongst us. Well, what is the word? What is the message? 
Verse 2. What is this message that we need to be listening to? Verse 2 says, And saying, what is he saying? Repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. So he says, repent, and then he gives you the reason why you should repent. So what does it mean to repent? Every Christian should know what repent means. And yet I confess, even as I was preparing for this sermon, that I don't have a clear definition. I don't even think my definition here is going to be the most um, helpful in terms of memory. I'll work on it, and next time I get to a text on repent, I'll give you a better, clearer definition. But here's my definition right now. Repentance or repenting means to turn one's soul, one's life, one's all, to turn one's life, to turn it to recognize sin as wrong, abhorrent, and utterly disastrous, resulting in change. Okay? So it's a turning to see something. First, you see sin as okay. You don't care. It's not a big deal. Or you don't even know you're sinning. But then there's a switch in the mind. There's a switch in the eyesight. There's a switch in the sense of your heart. You start to sense and see that this is wrong. Not only is it wrong, it's abhorrent. It's detestable. Not only is it detestable, it is utterly disastrous. And for me to spend one more second indulging in it would be the worst thing I could possibly do with my life. And that results in what? Change. Now, sometimes we see it's wrong. But it's not quite abhorrent yet, right? Because we have reasons why it's okay for us to do wrong. Or we say it's wrong, it's even abhorrent to the point where we would be embarrassed if someone else found out about it. But it's not utterly disastrous to us because we still do it. So you could have a good theology. You could, you could memorize scripture and say, yes, lying is a sin. And yet it's not utterly disastrous to you. It's maybe a little disastrous to you. But what's a bigger disaster is if I told the truth. So therefore, I got to lie or whatever sin, fill in the blank. The point is, until sin is seen as wrong and abhorrent and utterly disastrous, there is no lasting change. There is no real change. There is no repentance. So when John says and God says repent, he's telling you to recognize sin, to see sin as evil and horrible with your head and sense sin as evil and horrible and utterly disastrous with your heart and with your hands, your lifestyle, as you turn to Jesus. Repentance is when you stop trusting and loving and building your identity on anything other than God, and you trust and live and build your identity on God instead. That's what repentance is. So why should we repent? Look at verse 2. John gives us a reason why we should repent. Why should we repent? Because what? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's why you should repent, because the sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign of God has come near. Now, for John's audience, they wouldn't emphasize the sinner-saving part of the kingdom. They would emphasize the curse-reversing part of the kingdom. Okay, The Bible in the Old Testament does talk about sinner-saving, but it's not emphasized the way it's so clarified in, in crystal clarity in the New Testament. So they would have thought, John, when they're hearing, oh, the kingdom of God has come near. What are they thinking? They're thinking it's the curse-reversing rule that would overthrow the Jewish oppressors, the Roman Empire, and the illegitimate King Herod, right? And all uh, King Herod and Pilate and all the four governors over the land at that time, that God would overthrow them, the oppressors, and restore Israel to peace, to favor, to flourishing, with God's face shining upon them and protecting them as the nation above all nations. That to them was the curse-reversing reign of God. So when John says the kingdom of God has come near, they are excited. 
But John says, repent of your sins. He gets real personal real fast. It's not just the curse-reversing reign of God. It's the sinner-saving, curse-reversing reign of God. So if that's the kingdom of God, the sinner-saving, curse-reversing rule, and here's John the Baptist. So we have Jesus' birth, and now you have John the Baptist before Jesus' life and ministry. John is saying right here in this timeline, the kingdom of God has come near. For it to have come near, it means it's not yet here. So when does the kingdom of God come? If John the Baptist is saying the kingdom of God is right here at the doorstep, when does it actually come? Well, it comes in three stages or three phases. And all of them, you could say the kingdom of God has come. So let me give you these three phases. Here's a little bit of biblical theology for you. The kingdom of God comes when Jesus comes. When Jesus steps out and starts preaching and casting out demons and doing miracles and teaching, he says, if you see the Son of Man casting out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is how you know the kingdom of God is here because I'm here and I'm exercising this rules as I'm throwing out demons from oppressing people. You're seeing the the curse reversing, sinner saving rule of God coming as I'm tossing out demons. The kingdom of God has come because I have come. So John's saying he's about to come, the kingdom's about to come and then Jesus comes and the kingdom's here. But then that's the first phase. The second phase of when the kingdom of God comes, you could say, well, the kingdom comes At the cross, at the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the kingdom comes. Revelation 12, verses, um, Revelation 12, verses 7 through 10 would bear this out. So Revelation 12, verse 7, there's a war in heaven. Satan is thrown out of heaven because Michael and his angels are are fighting against um, Satan and or the dragon and his angels. Actually, right before that in Revelation 12, verses 4 through 6, Jesus is born. He ascends to heaven. Okay, the dragon tries to kill Jesus. He doesn't get Jesus. Jesus ascends to heaven. He he dies on the cross, rises from the dead, assumed, and he ascends back to heaven. Then Satan is cast out of heaven. And then it says in Revelation 12, verse 10, then I heard a loud voice saying or crying out, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come. It's come because of the, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And it says, the kingdom of God has now come and the authority of his Christ because the accuser has been thrown out. He has been thrown down because the accuser who accuses the brothers and sisters before our God day and night has been thrown down. So when did the kingdom of God come? At the cross, resurrection, and ascension. That's phase two. Phase three of the kingdom of God coming is when Jesus Christ comes again then the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. So in the New Testament, there are three different ways and three different phases of talking about the kingdom of God coming, okay? The life and ministry of Jesus, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. Three different ways the Bible talks about the kingdom of God coming. It doesn't matter which one is here because when John the Baptist is preaching, which one of those have happened yet? None of them have happened, right? So John is at the, he's at the doorstep. Like the kingdom of God is literally gonna come any second now. Because I'm here baptizing and sometime he's going to come around, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet him. I'm right here, right before him. So as the kingdom of God is coming, but for us, so, so for them, it's coming near. For us, which phase are we in? Has phase one already passed? Yeah, Jesus has come. He's, he's done his ministry on earth. Has phase two passed? Has he died, rose, and, and went up to heaven? Yes. yes. Phase three is his second coming. Has he come again? No, so we're sort of like in 2.5 or something like that, right? We're like in phase 2.5. But this is still our message today, right? 
As I'm talking to any non-Christian here, or as you talk to your non-Christian family and friends, you can say to them, you need to repent because the kingdom of God has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it is coming in its fullness when Christ comes again. So you need to what? Repent. Because the king is coming, and the king already has come. We're already there, but not yet. Now, if this is true, then there is salvation and judgment to be experienced right now if you come to Christ, and salvation and judgment when Christ returns. So how can we be so sure that the kingdom of God is so near? How, do we, how does John know, and how can we know that John is the one to come right before the king? Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. So here, what is Matthew telling us? We've been doing this a lot last few weeks. Here we get a light one verse on the Old Testament. Why, how do we know John is the one who's going to prepare the way for Jesus? Because there was a prophecy that Isaiah wrote 700 years previously. And in Isaiah, it's from Isaiah 40, verse 3. But in Isaiah 40, if you guys know the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is a story about God's judgment because Israel has failed to keep the law covenant, and so they're going to be exiled. Assyria to the north is going to be exiled. Isaiah is prophesying in the south, but the south is threatened by Assyria as well. And in the middle of that doomsday message, Isaiah 40 is the turning point of the whole book where God says, comfort, comfort my people. There is hope. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Yes, your sin has devastated you. Yes, my judgment has come upon you because of your sin. Yes, you are thrown out of the land, and yet... As you're weeping, comfort is coming. Hope is coming. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness is coming to prepare the way for me, Yahweh, because I will come and bring ultimate comfort and hope and restoration to your sin-sick, cursed souls. So now John the Baptist steps on the scene, and if you realize that he's the voice crying out in the wilderness, that's why he went out to the wilderness of Judea. As he's there crying out in the wilderness, if you knew your Bible, you'd be scratching your head and be like, wait, this is God coming. This is the restoration of the kingdom. We were in exile, and we're still in exile under Rome. And yet, the voice is crying out in the wilderness. God is going, Yahweh is going to come any minute now. It had to be exciting because it was fulfilling prophecy. So how do we know that John is the true messenger? Look at ver- So verses 2 and 3, how do we know that John is the true messenger? Number one, his message. What's his message? What's it, what is he telling people to do? To what? Repent. repent. You know someone's a true messenger of God when they are telling you to repent from your sins. Be suspicious. Be weary. Be skeptical of preachers and teachers and messengers of God and those who call themselves Christian when they minimize repentance. That is a yellow flag, that is a red flag, that you are in the midst of someone who might look like the lamb, but whose voice is like the dragon, to use Revelation's terms. Someone who looks like a Christian, and sort of sounds like a Christian, but it's really Satan deceiving you. That's how we know John's a messenger, because of his message of repentance from sin. But not only that, it's his life. Look at verse 4. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and his food and locusts and wild honey. So how do we know John's a messenger of God? Because of his funny dress and his weird diet. That's how we know 
Now, what are saying? Well, how, okay. John was eccentric. That's not, I mean, so I'm not saying anyone who's dressed with camel hair garments and eating wild locusts and honey today, you're back, that's an automatic messenger of God. I mean, that's what the Bible says, right? That's what PJ said. No, that's, that's not what I'm saying here. But what does John's dress portray, among many things? One of the things it portrays is that this man is dead set and serious about his message. He cares little about, little about anything else, right? He doesn't care about the cares of the world. He cares about getting the message of repentance out so people are prepared for the coming of Yahweh. He's, he's, he's so focused on his message that he is not distracted by the luxuries of this world. Is that relevant today for Christians in America? Of all places, where we are in the top 1% or 2% of the, the world's wealth? You know, John Piper was asked the question, what's the difference between living for the kingdom and living the American dream? His answer is basically, the difference is a wartime mindset of living and a peacetime mindset of living. If you're in a peacetime mindset of living, then you, you hang out, you relax. There's no, there's no urgency to anything. But um, I did not live during the World War II times, but I did watch Captain America. And in Captain America, he went around advertising, trying to raise funds for the war. But what was the whole point? Everyone in America, some of you brothers and sisters will be old enough to remember that at the time, were, were all, everyone had a wartime mentality, even if you weren't going out to the battlefield. You were sacrificing back home. You were working. You were doing whatever you could because as a whole nation, there was an understanding that we are in wartime, not just our military, but we're in wartime. So we all need to work together and make sacrifices and be mindful of the greater battle of our troops on the field. And that's the way a Christian should be thinking all the time. We are not in peacetime. We are in wartime. And so John Piper says this, what are you, what are you going to make much of? What, what are you trying to make much of? He says, I ask, my question, I ask this question day by day. What am I going to make much of today? Then we will gravitate towards making much of the same. If I don't ask that, we will, make mu- we will gravitate towards making much of the same things that everybody around us is making much of, like sports teams, food, a new computer program, cars. None of these things are sin unless they become the thing that we're driven by. The difference between a kingdom mindset and a worldly mindset is the king. What place does the king have? Is he central in our affections, our vocabulary, and in what we want to see happen at work, church, and in our leisure? And then he continues, does the war, they ask him, does the war style, wartime lifestyle, does that come easily to you? And he says, no, I don't think it comes easily for anybody. If it starts coming easily, then it may result in pride. That may not always be the case. Because the things we work hard at are sometimes the things we boast in most. Pride is very insidious and subtle thing. Now, look, this is an extended quote, but it's so good. We need to think about it in light of John's clothing. When I say, this is how you know true messenger of God, if they're living a wartime lifestyle. When I say wartime lifestyle, quote, I mean something very complex. That's why I say wartime and not simple lifestyle because of this complexity. In wartime, you may, build a, you may need to build a, B2, a B-52 bomber, which costs millions and millions of dollars in order to win the war. In a simple lifestyle, however, you wouldn't fiddle around with bombers. Instead, you would just move out to Idaho, plant potatoes, and be irrelevant. In a wartime lifestyle, you always ask yourself, how can my life count to advance the cause of Christ? And if it means buying a computer to keep in touch with your missionaries through email, then you're going to invest several thousand dollars into a computer and software. That's wartime lifestyle. But you might not eat out as often 
Or you might buy a used car so that you can buy that computer. That's what I mean by wartime lifestyle. The alternative is just to go with the flow. Everybody gets his toys, bigger house and car, more clothing, more fine food, without even thinking about how the war effort is advancing. Personally, I must battle every day against drifting. It isn't about making choices so much. The battle is primarily against being comfortable with things that aren't essential to the war effort. Amen. So you have to check yourself. Sit down with your wife and ask, how are we doing with our spending? How are we doing with the use of our discretionary money for leisure, etc.? That's how you know someone's a messenger of God. They are devoted to the war. And they make sure that every bit of their time and money and relationships and profession is all connected and geared toward advancing the war effort, as John the Baptist was here. So that's how we recognize a true messenger. And when we, when we see a true messenger, when we hear his message, what is the call? To repent of our sins. To repent. What does it mean to repent? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? He was... He ran away from his father, wished his father was dead, and took his inheritance early. You're supposed to take your inheritance from your father after he dies. He wanted it before his dad died. Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your money now. Dad was sad. Gave him the money anyways. He goes out, has a lot of friends, because when you got a lot of money, you get a lot of fair-weather friends too. Had a lot of friends. Money went away, and so did the friends. He's eating at a pigsty, eating the food of the pigs. And then it says... He came to his senses. Or the King James says, he came to himself. He came to his senses. He woke up. That's, repent- that's the beginning of repentance. Amen. When you see and sense the stupidity of sin. When you start to see that this is insane. Like what I'm doing right now and not repenting is insane. I am eating pig food and my father is rich and the servants of my father and the servants servants of my father eat far better than i do what am i doing here you see it you feel it the insanity the stupidity the craziness of sin and you run with all your might in the other direction that's what repentance is and that's what that's what the call is here to to wake up from the temporary insanity and turn. Christian, have you repented from your sins? Thomas Watson writes this. Would you know, I'm going to give the New King James version of Thomas Watson, not the thou and the thee. Would you know when you have been humbled enough for sin? When you are willing to let go of your sins. Sometimes you're grieving over your sin, but you're still not willing to let go. Or you'll let go of some, but not all of them. There's two pet sins that you just want to keep around because those, those hurt too much to let go of. You're not repenting yet at all. At all. There's no like 50% repentant. That's not repentance. There's no turning yet. So how do you know you're repentant and humbled enough? When you're willing to let go of all your sins. When you're still justifying it and you don't get it yet. To the stubborn Christian here, delaying repentance but desiring to be godly later doesn't strengthen or progress you towards repentance, but it progresses you in the opposite direction. Here's what Thomas Watson says again. By delay of repentance, sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. 
the harder it is to be broken. Brother or sister, have you justified your sin? And, isn't your, and if you have been justifying your sin, isn't it a stronger justification today than ever before? Because you've got to keep it up. You've got to have more reasons. And you've spent so much time justifying it, it feels like it's worth it more to even justify it now even more, right? The heart gets harder. So repent now. This is our message as a church, right? Church family, what's the, what's the message to us as the 66 members, active members of Bethany Baptist Church? We are a gospel community, and we communicate the gospel in our words, and we display it in our lives of regular and repeated repentance. Amen. We show the world what it means to trust in Christ by our repenting and trusting in Christ. Kingdom participation begins here at repentance. No repentance, no Christianity. No repentance, no eternal life. No repentance, no king. No repentance, no Jesus. None. To the society, our message is clear. Turn from your rebellion to God's kingdom and turn back to God because he will graciously forgive you and receive you. If you're not a Christian, you might say, PJ, this sounds way too rigid. This is why I don't want to be a Christian. Because it's rigid. I mean, you have to repent of all your sins? Come on. That's, that's, that's just too much. I don't want to live for this God and, and, and have to give up all these things. That, that sounds too rigid. It sounds too um, oppressive. It's not freeing. Well, if that's what you're thinking, you need to realize that you have one thing in your life of primary importance. Even if it's not God, you have something in your life that's of primary importance to which you will never turn away from. You have a primary commitment. And guess what? You are rigid about that commitment. You don't have to be a Christian to be rigid. You just have to be human. Everyone is rigid about something. Everyone has one commitment to which they will sacrifice everything else for it. And if yours isn't Jesus, if you're not a Christian, it's not Jesus, what is it? Is it your job? Is it your money? Is it your friends? Is it the facade that everyone believes you are when you know you're not that? What is it that you are so rigid to keeping that you sacrifice everything else? And would you really call that freedom? Or is that not slavery itself? I'd encourage you to trust in Jesus and turn from your sin. If you're a parent or you're a husband or you're a leader in your home or a leader anywhere, understand that good relationships flourish under a repentant leader. A leader is a lead repenter. Children, children, what matters most is not what your parents think. It's what God knows. So repentance is repenting before God even before you get caught or your parents give you that look and say you're in trouble, (laughs) okay? For those who are discouraged and weak and still under Satan's lie where you're like, oh, God just won't forgive me of my sin. Brother, sister, Christian, non-Christian friend, God is gracious. God is enthusiastic and excited for you to come to him. Don't believe the lie of Satan that, that makes him look like he's cranky and grumpy and wants to zap you. He could have done that a long time ago if he wanted to. He's calling you because he loves you. So the main idea is listen to the kingdom call, respond with your soul, your life, your all. First of all, do it by repenting from your sin. That's the longest one by far. That's the meat of it, and really everything else is flowing from a definition of repentance. So we spend extended time there. These next three points are shorter. Let's go to the second one. So not only turn from your kingdom rebellion, secondly, publicize your betrayal. If you're going to betray your old master, your old kingdom, for the kingdom of God, you need to publicize your betrayal. How do, they, how do they publicize it here in verses 5 and 6? They're going out to the wilderness, right? They're going out to the wilderness from all Jerusalem. And what are they doing in the Jordan River? 
They're getting baptized and they are confessing their sins. Repentance is private, but it's also public. It's not one or the other. And do not believe the lie that if you're repenting privately, you are repentant. Private repentance always goes public. It doesn't hide. If you're still feeling like you need to hide something, guess what? You still need to hide something. You're not there yet. You haven't given it up yet. Repentance always goes public. So what did they do? When they heard about John the Baptist in verse 5, what did they do? They heard about this preaching. They go out to see. They weren't passively just saying, oh, I'll wait to see it online. I'll wait to see John's message online. No, they actually go out and go to the wilderness to hear for themselves God's message. So that's what you need to do. You can't be passive if you're going to seek the kingdom of God. You need to be actively seeking God's word and seeking to hear and believe and repent. So whatever grace God gives you to be interested in God, use it to keep coming to God's word with his people. But not only do you need to to be active and get up and move, you need to go public. That's verse six. They were immersed, baptized means immersed. They were immersed by John in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. They were immersed in the Jordan River. So they were identifying publicly with John's message and their repentance. They weren't saying, hey, John, like Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. That's not these people. They're being baptized, immersed in water in front of everybody. So if you see PJ go down there and you see him go down in the water, that is not a private thing that I'm secretly doing on the side. It's a very public act to be immersed in water for repentance in John's baptism. Now, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and it was an anticipation of Jesus. Christian baptism that we do back here is not the same thing. It's similar, but not the same thing. Same thing. That's a baptism of repentance anticipating Jesus. Our baptism is a response to what Jesus has already done. And it's identifying ourselves with his life, death, and resurrection. And our baptism, Christian baptism, is a public profession of being immersed in Jesus. When you go down into this water, that is a public picture of the fact that you, by faith, you have immersed yourself in Jesus. That's Romans 6, right? You are now immersed in him. Your identity is now new. You are now changed. You have been changed spiritually, and this is symbolizing it in the water. It's a signing on the dotted line publicly that you are committed to Jesus Christ and you are committed to his church and the mission. And you only need to be baptized once, once you become a Christian. But they weren't just getting baptized publicly. What else were they doing in verse 6? As they were getting baptized, they were what? Confessing their sins. Confession means to call out something in agreement. So they were confessing sins publicly, meaning they were agreeing with their words and their actions that their sin, their personal sin was devilish, detestable, and disastrous, like we said earlier. They were doing that publicly. So if you are going to enter the kingdom of God today, if you want to follow Jesus and have eternal life and be under the sinner saving, curse reversing rule of God, you need to repent privately on your own before God, but then you need to go public with it and get baptized, immersed in water as a public declaration that you are part of the people of God. You know that, that the church is not the only place that has public initiations for their society? Do you know that gangs have initiations? Don't they? You could get jumped in. You could be assigned a mission to go rob or beat up someone or do some crime, and then if you do that, you're in. You could maybe get a tattoo. At least that's how it was in L.A. with, with the biggest gang, one of the biggest gangs in Los Angeles. You'd have to get a tattoo as well. Um, to to be part of that gang. But it's not just gangs, even schools, right? If you're going to go to a school, you have to apply. 
they interview you sometimes, and then there, there's a formal acceptance letter that you're part. There's a there's a public mutual agreement that you're part of the school. Or if you're going to start a new family, there's a public wedding. Or even an adoption, there's a legal declaration. If you're going to be on a sports team, if you're going to go to professional sports, you need to get drafted. You need to sign a contract. The draft is public. Things are public. If you get a new job, you apply first for the job, you get interviewed for the job, you get accepted to the job, and then you have orientation for the job. There's a, there's a formal process. Publicly identifying yourself in some way is not strictly religious. It's just how society works. It's the corporate nature of society. So we continue to... We, we do the same thing. We have a public initiation, which is baptism and, and church membership. We continue our public confession of our sins. John Lee just led us in a prayer of confession where we're confessing our sins to the Lord. The church covenant and the renewal, our renewal of our church covenant and the Lord's Supper, we also confess our sins there. I mean, how many times do you read this church covenant and you just feel convicted, right? Like you're reading this thing and you're just like, ah, oh, ah, oh, you know, and like you're, you're hurting all, you know, five, six lines here and you're just, maybe the whole thing, and you just feel totally worthless by the end of the church covenant. And then we take the Lord's Supper together, right? And that's why we do it, because we remember that we're united to Christ and it's not our own righteousness. But we are publicly confessing what God says. We are confessing our sins before the Lord and even amongst each other in this church. And then some of you, I would encourage all of you Christians, you need to have other brothers and sisters in in the church that you confess your sins to. If you have no brothers or sisters in the church that you confess your sins to, your spiritual life is deficient. I'm just, just straight up. Your spiritual life is deficient and there is a lack of maturity in that area of your Christian life. And I encourage you to grow in that area. All right, so for private professing Christians, what do you need to do? You need to get baptized. You're like, I've already been baptized. Well, are you a member of a church? That's the other way you maintain public profession. If you're a member of this church, let us remember that we are publicly accountable before God and before this world as Bethany Baptist Church. And for our church, this means we hold each other accountable. We do this to every member of this church. Everyone who's identified publicly as a member of this church and a follower of Jesus Christ, we are responsible for their discipleship and we hold them accountable. Not with a stern, self-righteous condescension on them, but a humble service of making sure we hold each other up because sin and Satan are relentless in attacking us. So we're responsible for each other publicly. And so when someone checks in on you and asks you how you're doing or asks you how your life is with the Lord and even convicts you with a conversation, rebuke should not be rejected. It should be welcomed, not resented. We are not into mere formalities of a healthy church. We don't care merely about structures when we're cleaning the role. We are into functioning well relationally in our church. And to do that, you have to understand the public nature of what a church is. So listen to your kingdom call, respond with your soul, your life, your all, by turning from rebellion and going public with your profession. Number three, live for the kingdom or bear fruit. Live for the kingdom and bear fruit. Verses seven through 10. Look at verse seven. This ties to what I just said. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, what did he call them? Brood of vipers, you snakes. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, calling them a brood of vipers or snakes What other Bible word comes to your mind besides viper and snake? Synonym. Snake. I said, huh? Sir. Gave it away. Yeah. Serpent. You brood of serpents. What does that remind you of? I'm not going to give it away this time. What text? Genesis 3. 
the offspring of the woman in hostility with the offspring of the serpent. You serpents, you seed of Satan, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Didn't Jesus do a similar thing? You are of your father the what? Devil in John eight forty four because you're lying and you guys want to kill me. So what do we? If we're going to live for the kingdom, what do we do when someone calls us the seed of the serpent, <laughs> or you're of your father the devil? Well, if you're if you're not repentant, what are you going to do? You're going to be what? You're going to be defensive. You're going to be offended. How dare he call me a seed of the serpent? How dare he call me a brood of vipers? And you'll be so mad, you'll walk away all angry, and you won't even receive the word of God that's coming to you because you're so proud and arrogant and defensive that you can't hear what God's saying. It's not wrong for John to call them brood of vipers. It wasn't wrong for Jesus to call them children of the devil. It's not wrong for Paul in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 6, 3 and 4 to say, my opponents understand nothing. They are conceited. It's not wrong for someone to call you a sinner, to call you out with a harsh word. Now, their attitude could be wrong. You got to watch out for that. But just because of the words, if you're offended by the words, you're not repentant yet. Your heart is still guarded and hard and protective. You're still selfish and self-centered in some degree of defensiveness. So let us hear when we're confronted. Don't nitpick and nuance the rebuke when somebody rebukes you. Receive it and be grateful and realize whatever delusion you get. Even if someone rebukes you and they're 40% right, don't focus on the 60% they did wrong. Who cares about proving them wrong? They're giving you a gift of 40% that's 40% accurate, of sin in your life. And if you care about repenting from sin, you don't care about the 60% they got wrong. You're thankful for the 40 and say, thank you for pointing something out of my life. Amen. Don't get mad in your selfishness. Be grateful in humbleness. But not only receive rebuke, look at verse eight. Therefore, what is it? Produce what? Fruit consistent with Repentance. We call this fruitful repentance. You can always tell repentance by its fruit, by its results. You can never tell a profession of repentance just by someone saying they're repentant. You can't tell by tears in their eyes. You can only tell by the fruit and results of their profession. And guess what? If it's fake, it'll come out as fake. And if it's real, there will be fruit. There'll be rotten fruit or there'll be good fruit, but there will be fruit. And you will tell. So here, John calls them to fruitful repentance, to turn from their sin, and it will change their lives. Thomas Goodwin writes, There cannot be a true sorrow of the heart, of heart, there cannot be true sorrow of heart for sin that is past, but presently there does arise a purpose not to sin for the future. So if you're only sad about and repentant for sins in the past, but you're not sorrowful for your current sins, you're not really sorrowful for your past sins. You're just sorrowful for the consequences of them and not the sin itself. And so, and that that will come out with bad fruit. But if you're truly repentant before God, it will come out with fruit that is consistent with, with, with repentance. Henry Smith writes, the wicked do weep for their sins past, but the godly purpose to sin no more. The fruit of repentance is very specific to your life situation. So in Luke 3, 10 through 14, John the Baptist, they said, what do we do, John? And John says, uh, the one who has two shirts must give to the one who has none, and the one who has food must do the same. To tax collectors, they say, what do we do? Don't collect any more than what you've been authorized. 
Some soldiers said, what should we do? Don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Don't abuse your power as, as military. Be satisfied with your wages. Isn't that what Paul says in Ephesians 4? Speak the, if you're lying, what should you do instead? Speak the truth to one another. If you're angry, don't be angry and sin, but don't let the sun go down on your anger. Make things right before, before sleeping. If you have foul language, stop using foul language and instead speak edifying words that give grace to those who hear. If you're bitter or angry or wrathful or shouting or slanderous with malice, instead of doing that, what does it mean to repent? To be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God forgave you in Christ. If you're sexually immoral or have impurity or greed, it says in Ephesians 5 verse 3, instead of that, um, it says, every sexual, sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who's an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. When we're talking about repentance, I'm not saying just general repentance. I'm saying specific repentance. Pornography, greed, lying, pride, arrogance, talking down to someone to make yourself sound and look better than them. Specific sins with specific repentance bear specific fruit that is good to the glory of God. And then verse 9, don't presume on your repentance. They're saying, well, we're children of Abraham, so we're good. Don't presume on your, your heritage, your ancestry. Do you think you're okay with God because of your ministry? Because I'm a pastor who preaches on Sundays? Do you think you're okay with God because you're a member of a church? Or because of your heritage? Because there was Christianity, your parents were Christian, your grandparents were Christian, and your great-grandparents were Christian? Or because of your nationality? Because most in our country are Christians? Or because of your personal record in history about your Christian life from, from five years ago and ten years ago? Or are you confident in your Christianity because of your knowledge of the Bible and theology and your ability to articulate it? Or because of your decision in the past because you walked down the aisle during an altar call or you were baptized? Is that where your confidence is? Or because of the good things you've done for society? Children, you are not Christians just because your parents are. You need to, just like your parents, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. And if your confidence, not only for children, but for everyone here, if your confidence in your Christianity is anywhere anywhere else, your confidence is badly misplaced. Don't presume just because you're sons of Abraham, ancestrally, you're children of Abraham. Don't presume because you're around Christian things that you're a Christian. You need to repent and trust in Christ. Why? Because verse 10 says judgment is right around the corner. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Judgment is coming. This is not time to mess around and play fake Christianity. Christian, John Loftness writes about the path to repentance. Here's what he says. If you want to repent, here's the path. Pray, identify the sin, embrace the gospel, take steps to stop sinning, replace your sin with righteousness, and then seek fellowship with your church as a means of grace. That's a clear path. Okay, pray, identify it, embrace Christ, take steps to stop, replace it with something else, and tell your church family, others in your church, to walk with them together. Church, church family, our job is not only to communicate the gospel to the lost, but to help each other as Christians produce fruit for repentance. We are into fruitful repentance in this church. We don't want fruit checkers in this church where we're judgmentally checking in on everyone. How's your fruit today as you come through the door? You know, you're doing the greeting. What kind of fruit you bear this week? 
We're not trying to breed a culture of fruit checkers. Yet at the same time, as a church, we take really seriously the rotten fruit that some of our members might produce in the name of Christ to this church family, to their neighbors, and to the nations. And that's why we do Matthew 18, church discipline. Because those who persist in rotten fruit and, and refuse to repent must be restored all the way to the point of excommunication if that's the last step we can to try to restore them to repentance and faith. If you're not a Christian, again, God is calling you to repent and trust in Jesus. All right, let's go to this last point here. So turn from your rebellion, publicize your profession, live for the kingdom, and lastly, look to the king. Verses 11 and 12, look to the king. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I'm not worthy to remove his sandals. So what, is, what do we learn here? Jesus is greater than who? Than John the Baptist. He's greater in power. He's greater in honor. John can't even untie his sandals. What do we need to do? We need to recognize and know the power and honor of Jesus. We're not worthy of him. And yet he calls us friends. He calls us brothers. He makes us co-heirs to reign with him. He humbles himself to us. What power and condescension that Jesus would make us his brothers and his friends. We're not even worthy to serve him. And that he not only makes us his servants, he makes us his family. This is amazing. Amazing grace. Jesus is not only greater than, uh, in power in John, than John in, in, in power and honor. Jesus is a greater baptizer. How does John baptize, it says in verse 11? I baptize you with what? I immerse you with water for repentance. But he's going to immerse you with what? With the Holy Spirit and fire. Wow. What if we did that here, right? Instead of having water, just fire. We're going to immerse you in fire. That, that, that's the picture here. It's not like, you know, him like just, you know, you know lighting a match and like, you know, burn your, like he's immersing you into the Holy Spirit and into fire. What is that? Well, the Holy Spirit is called a fiery torch in Revelation 4 verse 5. But what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? It means to be immersed in the Holy Spirit so that just like you're immersed in Jesus, now Jesus is going to immerse you with the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit envelops you. Your whole life is lived in the power of and with the Holy Spirit around you as you live your life. Jesus is the one who does that by his death and resurrection. He has the authority to do that. What does it mean to baptize by fire? There's a debate about this, but it might mean a purifying, refining fire that causes you to be holy and pure and righteous before him. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 talks about the refiner's fire. Okay, so, so he baptizes you there. Or the fire might be judgment. He baptizes some of you with the Holy Spirit and others with fire because he is going to talk about judgment here. That those who are the chaff who are going to be burned. So baptism here. So Jesus is saying, if you go look at verse 12, or John is saying, about Jesus, who's baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will burn with fire that never goes out. So here we also learn that Jesus is the judge, right? He's going to judge people. And as John MacArthur has said, you will either be barned or burned. You'll either be barned or burned. The wheat will be put in a barn to be preserved and saved, and the chaff will be burned in judgment. Jesus is the judge. He immerses you with the Holy Spirit. He immerses you with fire or immerses some with fire. And you have the opportunity by repentance to come to him. 
to the judge. Now, if Jesus is the judge, why can Jesus take some in as wheat and not burn them all? I mean, aren't, isn't everyone a sinner? Aren't the wages of What's the wages of sin? Yeah. Death. And, is, and all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? So shouldn't all of them be chaff? Shouldn't all of them burn? Don't, doesn't everyone deserve to burn? Yes, but, but Matthew one twenty one says, you will name him Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. How can he save people from their sins when they deserve to be burned like the chaff? How can the judge save those who deserve judgment from their sin and the judgment for their sin? How? Because we read that the judge, Jesus, is also the judged. In Matthew 27, 45 and 46, from noon until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus was judged on the cross so that he can save sinners, so that the chaff can become wheat and he can put them in his barn and immerse them with the Holy Spirit. Because even though he lived with the Holy Spirit and never sinned against God, he was burned. He was judged. He was abandoned. So if you're not a Christian, this is the message of the gospel, that God made you to live for him and enjoy him, but we have rebelled against him and wanted to live and enjoy other things and build our lives on other things. And that's sin. And the penalty for sin is death. But God sent Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross, to be burned, to be condemned, to be judged, so that if you trust in Jesus Christ and repent from your sins and your personal righteousness and trust in Jesus alone, you will be saved. And if you're not a Christian, I invite you to trust in Jesus today. If you do, you will be saved from your sins and you will be barned, you'll be entering into the barn to the new earth with God's people forever. So turn from your sins and call out on Jesus today. All right, so let me summarize. The kingdom calls us to return from our rebellion, publicize our confession, continue in fruitful repentance, and look to Jesus, the, greater, the greatest and most powerful baptizer, our king. So brothers and sisters, another way of, rep- of summarizing it is look to Jesus and repent privately, repent publicly, and repent perpetually. Repent privately before God, repent publicly with your church family, and repent perpetually in, as you bear fruit. If you're not a Christian, repent and trust in Jesus. If you're a Christian who hasn't been baptized or you're not a member of a church, repent publicly. Join, get baptized and join a church that repents and follows Christ. And if you are a Christian, continue to experience repentance by repenting perpetually and and producing good fruit in line with that repentance. If you will not repent privately, publicly, and perpetually, you will continue to be deceived and hardened. You will miss your ultimate purpose and joy, and you will be judged in the end, thrown into the fire. But if you repent privately, publicly, and perpetually, you will be forgiven of your sins. You will be renewed with the joy of God as your strength, and you will be saved from the judgment and be with God forever and ever. Jesus, our King, is calling you to look at him and repent privately, publicly, and perpetually. Listen to the kingdom call. And respond with your soul, your life, your all. Father, take these words, these many words. We pray that whatever is true, that that would remain, and whatever is false or unhelpful would be dispensed with. And we pray that we would hide your word in our heart, that we would not sin against you. And when we do sin, we pray that we would quickly, immediately, happily run to you in repentance. 
that we might grow thereby. Give us, Lord, revive our church, revive your churches, and revive this land with a fresh blowing of your Holy Spirit where repentance is real and gritty and specific and fruitful and where trust in Christ is happy and abounding and flourishing and, um, and we're thirsting for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.